Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 4, 1 to 16. Hoy Dios nos habla a través de su palabra en Génesis 4, del 1 al 16. Conoció Adán a su mujer Eva, la cual concibió y dio a luz a Caín, y dijo, Por voluntad de Jehová he adquirido varón. Después dio a luz a su hermano Abel, y Abel fue pastor de ovejas, y Caín fue labrador de la tierra. Y aconteció, andando el tiempo, que Caín trajo del fruto de la tierra una ofrenda a Jehová. Y Abel trajo también de los primogénitos de sus ovejas, de lo más gordo de ellas. Y miró Jehová con agrado a Abel y a su ofrenda, pero no miró con agrado a Caín y a la ofrenda suya. Y se ensañó Caín en gran manera y decayó su semblante. Entonces Jehová dijo a Caín, ¿por qué, porque te has ensañado, ¿por qué te has ensañado y por qué ha decaído tu semblante? Si bien hicieres, no serás enaltecido y si no hicieres bien, el pecado está a la puerta. Con todo esto, a ti será su deseo y tú te enseñarás de él. Y dijo Caín a su hermano Abel, salgamos al campo. Y aconteció que estando ellos en el campo, Caín se levantó contra su hermano Abel y lo mató. Y Jehová dijo a Caín, ¿dónde está Abel tu hermano? Y él respondió, no sé, ¿soy yo acaso guarda de mi hermano? Y él le dijo, ¿qué has hecho? La voz de la sangre de tu hermano clama a mí desde la tierra. Ahora, pues, maldito seas tú de la tierra que abrió su boca para recibir de tu mano la sangre de tu hermano. Cuando labres la tierra, no te volverá a dar su fuerza. Errante y extranjero serás en la tierra. Y dijo Caín a Jehová, grande es mi castigo para ser soportado. He aquí me echas hoy de la tierra y de tu presencia me esconderé y seré errante y extranjero en la tierra. Y sucederá que cualquiera que me hallare me matará. Y le respondió Jehová, ciertamente cualquiera que matare a Caín siete veces será castigado. Entonces Jehová puso señal en Caín para que no lo matase cualquiera que le hallara. Salió pues Caín de delante de Jehová y habitó en tierra de Nod, al oriente de Edén. This is the word of the Lord. Gracias a Dios. So, one of the wonderful features of many disaster movies, uh, if anybody's a fan of them, uh, and honestly, frankly, I think maybe in life this is the case as well, uh, is the assumption that things are not as bad as they seem. It seems like in every disaster movie, there are, there's a character or a whole series of characters uh, that don't believe the scientists, they ignore the whistleblowers, or they distract themselves from thinking that there's this impending doom, and then before they know it, uh, the ocean drowns Manhattan, or the meteor destroys the planet, or the aliens colonize the Earth, uh, simply because they don't believe that it's as bad as it seems. The point is that often we do the same. We often don't realize just how bad things are, how dire a situation is, until it's too late. And here in Genesis 4, we have the very natural evolution of what occurs when people do not take God's word, his promises, his commands, and maybe more importantly today, his warnings serious enough. Things get worse than we expect them to be, and sometimes we don't even realize it until it's too late. 
that rejecting or ignoring the warnings that God brings has consequences that we could have avoided if we had just heeded those warnings. Now, today, we continue our series called In the Beginning, which is a series looking at our origin story, the book of Genesis. Uh, The book gives us context for understanding uh, creation, our place, our role in that creation, and ultimately, also the redemption and the restoration that God uh, has planned for us from the very beginning. Uh, If you've been with us over the course of this series, in week one, uh, we looked at the establishment of a perfect creation, one where God's presence dwelt among his creation. In the second week last week, uh, we took a look at the fall and the rebellion of God's crowning creation, humanity. And then as a result of the fall, sin has now pervaded the entire creation, distorting God's goodness in that creation. And today, we now turn to see how that perversion will begin to play itself out all the way through up until today in present day. Uh, something once, uh, someone once said about the first few chapters of the book of Genesis is that there's really nothing new that's ever really happened since those first few chapters of Genesis. History has just become cycles of the same story happening over and over and over again, just different expressions of it. And the book of Genesis shows us essentially how the, the seed of what's happening in the first few chapters of the book have blossomed and bloomed into fruit, destructive fruit, deadly fruit. And the Cain, this story of Cain and Abel is just that. It's showing us how the, the seed of what we've seen happen thus far begins to bloom into a full-fledged fruit of destruction. So what I want to show us today is first, I want to take a look at the seed of sin. What is it exactly that's at the, at the core of what we're seeing? Then I want to take a look at the fruit of sin but then I want to finally look at the fruit of life, okay? So let's take a look at that. So first, uh, the seed of sin. So for context, again, what's happened up until this point in the story, uh, if you remember, God has called and has enabled Adam and Eve to be co-creators with him. And he's called them to be fruitful and to multiply. Unlike the rest of uh, the creation, Uh, they can multiply the uniqueness of Adam and Eve's procreation is that they can actually produce more image bearers as a result of this uh, special, being the special creation of God. They get to participate in creating and co-creating in this way. It's really quite beautiful. And so Adam and Eve, they do just that. They begin to create more image bearers by having two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain worked out in the fields and uh, Abel tended to the animals. And at this point in the narrative, again, sin has pervaded the creation. And the work that they were now doing was marred by that sin. Meaning, whereas work was once this pure endeavor that had no negative element or consequence within it, sin was now very present in the work that they were doing. The result of this is seen in the, the telling of the offerings brought by Cain and Abel. We can see how sin has begun to pervade even their work. In verses three through five, it tells us this. Let me read this for us. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought uh, an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face 
was downcast. Now, in a moment, we're going to consider why Cain was so angry about his offering being rejected. But for now, let's at least recognize and point out the fact that there's something obviously wrong with Cain's offering that made it unacceptable to God. There is something unpleasing to God, something even sinful about the way in which Cain brought his offering. In fact, if you fast forward to 1 John 3 into the New Testament, there in verse 12, we're told this. We're told not to be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, for his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Meaning, there was something evil, there was something sinful about the way in which Abel brought his offering. So what exactly was happening in this offering that displeased God? Well, at the root of sin thus far, right? We've seen this now every week leading up to this story. What we have seen is at the core, at the center of sin has been this lack of faith and this lack of trust in the Lord and a desire to ultimately be one's own God. This was at the root of Adam and Eve's rebellion that we've seen thus far. The allure, of, uh, the allure for Eve was not eating the forbidden fruit, but rather the allure was the assumption that if she did eat that fruit, if she did disobey God, that she could then be like God. In other words, they did not trust God. And now, as a result, their son Cain is in the exact same situation. He too wanted to be master of himself, not a servant of his creator. And this is the story of humanity ever since. I mean, we see this time and time again, uh, time and time again, and actually in, in coming weeks, as we continue to go through the Genesis narrative, you're gonna see this exact problem at the core of so many of the stories coming soon. We see the same lack of trust uh, was apparent in the time of, of Noah, which we'll look at in coming weeks. It was the cause of the self-aggrandizement that we'll see in Babel. It's, it's present in Abraham, who lies in order to save his own skin in Egypt. It's at the root of Sarah's mistreatment of Hagar. It's the reason why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. I mean, we're going to see this over and over and over and over again throughout the narrative, that at the core of sin is this lack of trust in God. Time and time again, we see wickedness bloom from this seed of one's distrust. And maybe even to put a finer point on it, it's not just a distrust in God, but it's also the self-centeredness, this pursuit of self-glory, this self-righteousness. It's at the very core. It's the nature of what sin is. Uh, in his work uh, on the book of Romans, the famous reformer Martin Luther who's drawing on uh, the church father, St. Augustine, is thinking through this idea of how sin so often makes us very self-oriented and puts it this way. He puts it this way. The scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. In other words, the heart, right, we're told is, Incurvitus in say, curved in on itself. And this is exactly what we see in Cain. Abel brought his offering to the Lord with a, a heart desiring to please and to worship and to honor the Lord. Cain, however, came with this desire for self-glory, self-praise, this self-righteousness. In Cain, like in his parents, we see the same tendency to take his eyes off God, the one that should be at the center and instead turn his eyes 
inward, in on himself. And what's interesting to me is if you have ever known someone with that tendency, if you have ever been that person with that tendency to look in on, one, on yourself, I'll admit I can certainly be that person at times when self-glory and self-praise and self-righteousness is unappreciated. Meaning when, when I prioritize myself and then I find myself unappreciated, ignored, or rejected, how do we often respond? We often respond with anger. I mean, some of the angriest people are also some of the most self-righteous people. Not because they have a, a righteous anger, but because they believe they deserve better, they, they believe they are smarter or wiser, everyone is just below them, below me. It's that kind of anger. Cain, what we see here is Cain is that kind of angry. Because of his pursuit of self-glory, his, his offering is rejected and so he becomes angry. Final note, just to make about this, about what's happening here, is that the presence of sin uh, is something that everyone's going to have to deal with, whether you're a Christian or not. But if you're a Christian, don't also miss that Cain's failure, and then also what we just heard Martin Luther talking about, is that one can be so curved in on themselves that not only do they use physical things to sin, but they also use spiritual things to sin. Don't miss Abel, or sorry, Cain is sinning in his offering, in his worship, he is sinning. We can use our spirituality or our assumptions of spiritual maturity or our spiritual disciplines and our offerings to the Lord as a way of rejecting him and instead promoting an act of worship of self. Just know, the point just being that sin is everywhere. It's pervaded everything, even our worship. And that sin, which is self-glory and self-fulfillment, is not just the end. Again, it's just the seed. This is at the center of what sin is. It's just the beginning. Because things, as a result of that seed, get far worse. Because there is fruit that now comes from that seed. Let's take a look at that. So God's response to Cain is fascinating. He doesn't actually rebuke Cain, but rather warns him to get his sin, his self-orientation, under control. So it says in verse 4, it says this, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now there's a few things to note here first thing to note is throughout the Bible, you see God asking questions all the time. And we saw this last week as well. God asking Adam and Eve, where are you? Uh, these questions are not because God doesn't know the answer, but rather because like a good counselor, he's attempting to draw us out. He's trying to lead us to answering the question ourselves so that we might be part of discovering the answer to the question. And so he asked Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? These are questions where God is trying to draw out of Cain the issue that is at his center, at his core. Now, of course, for Cain, um, this should have been a huge clue. Right? God approaching him with these kinds of questions, Cain's initial reaction should have been, okay, 
I know I've not done what is right. I know that I need to evaluate what's happening within me. Uh, God rejected my offering, and so why? It should be an opportunity for self-reflection. As I said, God is not harshly rebuking him right now. Instead, he's trying to draw Cain out to self-reflect. And God's subsequent uh, words to Cain are actually quite telling. They reveal a very real threat to Cain that God tries to warn him about. That if he doesn't self-reflect, there's a real warning to come from God that he not only extends to uh, Cain, but also, I would say, extends to all of us. Look at verse 7. It says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That's a striking image and a striking warning that God gives to Abel. Abel, in your anger, you are not seeing something important. You are missing the fact that sin, like a predator, is waiting to strike. It's crouching at your door. It desires to have you and devour you. And you better pay attention because you must rule over it before it does. And in many ways, God is prophesying to Cain, you better get a hold of the reasons you're so angry before that sin consumes you. Now, this prophetic word uh, from God is important because of what happens next in the story. I mean, as we, we've heard, Cain was, of course, very angry. And it not only led him to despise and resent his brother, but of course, it also led him to murder his brother. Verse 8 tells us that now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So what we need to see is that the seed of sin, right, that seed, that core being self-glory, produces a fruit of sin, which is actually just more sin, but often more egregious expressions of that sin. Right? Cain had a heart issue that focuses attention on himself instead of God. God then tells him, you better get that under control because if you don't, sin is a predator, sneaking, crouching, stalking you. It is just waiting at the door like one pouncing on a trap. And this is how sin often works. Right? It often works this way that if we don't address the smaller thing, right, that's in our heart, that's that heart's sin, it will eventually blossom into something even more destructive. I mean, think about, you know, famously, Jesus' words in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says that you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. In other words, interesting Right? Jesus is pointing out how the sin of one's heart can actually produce this fruit of sin, something far more egregious, because we know something like adultery starts as a sin in the heart with a self-centered desire before it becomes a sin of the body. Why? Because sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I mean, think about other problems that we see in the world. I mean, exploitation and greed start with covetousness of the heart that desires more than what one currently has. It starts as a sin of the heart before it becomes the sin of acquiring more, often through theft and lying and oppression and injustice. Why? Because sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. Gluttony and drunkenness 
starts with a, a self-oriented desire of the heart for pleasure and distraction before it becomes a sin of the body that leads to overeating or overdrinking and sinful decadence. Why? Because sin's crouching at the door. It desires to have you. I mean, all wickedness and violence and abuse and manipulation and arrogant mockery and indifference uh, to injustice and so much more all starts with a seed of self-glory that blossoms into wicked fruit if we don't get it under control because sin is crouching at our door. It desires to have us. And from a Christian perspective, that seed exists in every one of us. Every single one of us is capable of some of the most heinous things one could imagine. Christian teaching is, is very clear that no one is righteous and that we're all capable of doing the worst kind of things. And the only reason we don't fall into the, the worst kinds of things, the most heinous things, is because of God's grace in restraining the evil that's in each one of our own hearts. Through keeping us from circumstances that allow us, to, that what might lead us to the most egregious, it's all part of God's grace. I don't recall exactly uh, who said this. I heard it from Tim Keller, which I think is maybe like second or third, you know, down the line somewhere. But, I, um, but he was pointing out the nature of God's grace in, uh, in restraining evil. And that we all, if not for that grace, really could be potentially the worst of humanity. And he compared it to an acorn. You know, within an acorn, a single small acorn, is everything needed to develop an entire forest in just one acorn. Of course, we, we know that all the right conditions would have to be met in order for that one acorn to become a forest. You know, it would need to be planted in a particular, uh, particular kind of soil at a particular kind of moment, then you know, produce a tree that, that would produce more acorns, which would then fall and produce more trees over and over and over. But eventually, it's possible, given the right circumstances, a single acorn could turn into an entire forest. The point just being is that within each one of us, if the circumstances were just right, we all could bloom and blossom into that terrifying, horrible forest of sin. And at the same time, we also know that most of us won't blossom into committing the most egregious sins, but we also know that there's very much a spectrum, right? It's at the core this, this heart that desires to be its own God, the heart that desires to take uh, to, for self-glory and a self-righteousness that exists within us, it's that kind of core that can lead to so many other kinds of sin because sin is crouching at our door. It desires to have us unless we rule over it. That said, though, there is also an alternative we don't have to succumb to this fruit of sin. We might all have that seed that's within us, but we don't have to succumb to the wickedness of the fruit that's produced as a result. If, if, and it's a big if, if we can acknowledge that the fruit that we ultimately need is not a fruit that we can actually produce, if we recognize the extent to which we need something to fundamentally change about that seed that's within all of us, we can then have a vision for something far greater, far more beautiful than just the fruit of the sin that we see so often in this world. And that would be seeing that there is life, a fruit of life. I'll explain to you what I mean. Uh, so when God comes uh, to Cain asking about Abel, 
Right? So Cain has just killed Abel. God's now approaching Cain about where his brother is. Cain's response is actually super obnoxious. Uh, he says, God says, where is your brother? And Cain is like, am I my brother's keeper? It was very much like, I don't know. It's not my responsibility to babysit him. Cain callously here does not care about his brother, nor has he cared about what he's done. He's just, it, that reads to me very much just like a shoulder shrug. I don't know. In fact, uh, we see him, uh, we see if we only see him caring about any of the situation, right? He's been very callous. He only cares, though, once God punishes him as a result of his wickedness. If you look at uh, verse 12, God says, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, here's the first time we're seeing Cain care about what he just did. My punishment is, is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He turns himself into a victim here, just to emphasize how much this guy very much had a self-orientation to himself. Doesn't care about his brother, only cares about now making himself a victim. So not only does he not care about his brother's life or care about what he's done, but he's also very much dishonored what it meant for him to be the oldest, eldest brother of this family. And the reason why I'm pointing that out is because in ancient times, throughout the Bible in particular, you see a, a very uh, central, a centrality of the family. In the Old Testament, family is a very important metaphor for how God makes us a people. Of course, we say things like God is our father. God reveals himself to us as a father. Now, as the people of God, we are, are made a family of God. And as a result, we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. But what's interesting is that throughout the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is that we see the ways in which the older brother the one who ought to be bringing honor to the family is the one who actually dishonors the family by callously making decisions that impact the entire family. We see this over and over and over again all throughout the scriptures. The older brother failing to live up to his responsibilities in the same ways that Cain does here. You know, here we have Cain. He's the older brother dishonoring God with his sacrifice and then murdering his brother, the one he should have protected. Later on in the, in the story of uh, Genesis, we have Esau, who was the older brother, who ended up giving up his birthright and his inheritance to his younger brother for some stew, thus bringing dishonor to his family. We have Jacob's older sons selling their younger brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt, right? They caused the suffering of Joseph and the anguish of their father Jacob all because of their jealousy all because of their self-centeredness. We have later on, we have Aaron, the older brother of Moses, who instead of leading God's people away from idolatry, if you know the story, he instead builds for them a golden calf, which brings judgments upon the people of God. You know, if you fast forward into the New Testament, you have the famous story of the younger prodigal son, the one who runs off with his inheritance to live this licentious life, but then you have the older brother who, upon the return of his younger brother, is not overjoyed like his father, 
but rather he's infuriated by his father's love for this younger brother. In other words, over and over again, we see this story of Cain and Abel play out. We have brothers, older brothers, who not only dishonor their family, but act in ways that are dishonorable and shirk their responsibility to lead their families well. And in, in many ways, the result is not the flourishing of their families, but rather the destruction of their families because of their selfishness. Time and time again, we have stories of brothers failing to be what is needed for the good of the family. That, of course, is until another person comes to fulfill the role of past brothers who failed to fulfill their duties. A brother who would lead well, who would honor his father well, who would commit to the flourishing of his family. Jesus Christ, we are told, is a son of God. And in him, we are told, in Ephesians 1 and Galatians 4, that we are adopted into the family of God. And as a result, Jesus is our elder brother. And Romans 8 says this in verse 29, that for those who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus Christ is our elder brother who fulfills what many failed to do. I mean, unlike Cain, Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous and without sin. Also, unlike Cain, who kills his brother out of a jealous anger, Jesus Christ allows himself to be killed for his brothers and sisters out of the love and compassion that he has for them. Unlike Cain, Jesus does not bring a blemished sacrifice, but rather is himself an unblemished sacrifice that is all-sufficient for our salvation. And think about the other brothers that we read about, the older brothers throughout the scriptures. Unlike Esau, Jesus does not give, us, uh, his inherit, give away his inheritance, but rather welcomes us into the inheritance that is rightly his. Unlike Joseph's older brothers who sold him into slavery, Jesus Christ liberates us from our bondage of sin. Unlike Aaron who idolatry builds the people, a golden calf, Jesus leads his people Instead, to a golden, instead of a golden calf to streets of gold in the new heavens and the new earth, unlike the older brother in the prodigal son who is angry at the return of his younger brother, Jesus Christ, along with the angels, rejoices even when one sinner repents. And I bring this to you in the context of the story because it's Jesus who is our life, when we are welcomed into the family of God as a result of trusting in him as our older brother, as we look to him, it reminds us of not only how serious the effects of sin are and how important it is that we truly do get it under control, but we can also look to Jesus as our elder brother, our redeemer, our God, the one who brings life through the salvation that he accomplishes for us. The story of Cain and Abel is very much a warning for us about what can happen if we do not take sin, especially the seed of sin that is within each one of us, what happens if we do not take it seriously? Over time, it will blossom into something far worse. And so God's warning to Cain is the same for us. Sin is crouching at your door. You better rule over it. But we can also know in the midst of fighting against that predator, we have an older brother 
who accomplishes what Cain couldn't do. Instead, he is our righteousness. He is our salvation. And as we look to him and trust in him, we become a people who are strengthened and empowered to overcome the sin that's at the door. So my encouragement would be to look to Jesus, to deal with the seed, that we might be able to live lives that are righteous and pure and holy and reflective of the God who loves us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the goodness uh, that we see in the work of Jesus, our older brother, the one who, of course, lives a life that we couldn't live, who offers a perfect sacrifice himself in order that we might have the power necessary by the work of your spirit in our lives to combat that predator that's always at the door. God, would you help us to take very seriously our sin, especially the seed of sin, that self-righteousness, that self-orientation, that desire for self-glory. May you help us take seriously that which is within us and keep us from allowing that sin to blossom into something far more egregious. And help us to look upon Jesus, trusting the work of his spirit for its that's the way that you keep us. That's the way you deal with that heart issue within us. So would you, by, our, by your spirit, help us to trust in the work of our elder brother. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.